0: Joy and I, yesterday or the day before, um, we were, well, she was, um, we were, she was the boss, I was the labor. going through our downstairs basement storage, you know, we have boxes that we haven't touched since. We moved a couple years ago and we were, you know, just doing some things and throwing things away and uh, just kind of... Um, I don't know, just doing what you do when you're trying to sort of downsize. I guess if we end up having to go to the retirement home, I mean, we'll be able to move straight in. I'm not sure what her angle is, but there's some angle. And she was just, we were just going through boxes. And she said to me, just out of nowhere, it seemed, she said, we need to get rid of our couch. Now, we have a couch in a room that we don't use. and, And it's just there because one of our neighbors was selling a couch and, you know, we thought we had to have it. And so we put it in a room and shut the door and You know, I haven't really thought a whole lot about the couch. It certainly wasn't an urgent thing for me to get rid of a couch that we don't use and I hadn't thought about. But for joy, it was. We have to get rid of it. And so I said, no problem, sweetheart. Facebook Marketplace. I'll put it on Facebook Marketplace. And did you know that there are a lot of crazy, crazy people in Des Moines and they are all 100% on Marketplace? People try to scam me out of a $225 couch that I would have been happy to give somebody if they needed a couch bad enough to commit a felony. So I waded through all of these scam you know, messages and trying to figure out what the angles people have on some of this stuff. Finally had a guy come over who needed the couch and. So I put the ad on, I took the pictures, I worded it in a very compelling and, and uh, uh, market savvy kind of a way. I met the guy, I helped him carry it to his truck. I helped him tie it down with more than one ratchet strap. I collected the $225. I came back into my house and I said to my wife, I just made $225. And she said to me, no, you didn't make $225. We made $225. And I said to Joy, I made the money because I did the work, because I'm the one who put the ad on. I I still wasn't getting the point. She said, I'm part of this family. We made the $225 and you know what she meant? She She made the $225 and the money's in her purse right now. I don't even know where it is. It just disappeared. Sometimes you just get the benefit or the blessing because you're part of the family, that's it. You're just part of the family and you just get the benefit, you get the blessing. Sometimes you gotta do the work to get the blessing. And this is a time this morning we're going to be talking about where God instructed Joshua to instruct the people who's now instructing us, Joshua, through the Lord, through the Jewish people and their obedience, that sometimes we have to do a little work to get the blessing. We're going to talk from Joshua chapter 5 today about a section of scripture It seems to be just a connecting passage. If I were telling you a story, it's the stuff I would leave out because I would lose your interest. You would begin to wander off and look away, thinking maybe that I was having a senior moment. It's the kind of detail that sometimes you get when you're talking to somebody that's not a very good storyteller. And at first, when I was reading Joshua chapter 5, I intended to skip it. I told you last week we were going to go to the Battle of Jericho and even told you the walls fell down. And I'd prepared all week to talk about the Battle of Jericho. And then on Thursday, I really began to think about this Joshua chapter 5 and realized that I had to share with you some really important truths that are found in Joshua chapter 5 that sort of take us back to when the children of Israel were on the other side of the river and God told them they had to purify or consecrate themselves because if they didn't, they would not experience the amazing things that God was going to do. What I want for you to do is to be able to experience the amazing things that God does because God does amazing things all around us. There's a part of your story that God is writing that you don't see. And there's some things in our lives that we have to do to put ourselves in a place to experience the stuff that God's doing that we can't do for ourselves. And so there are four different principles found in this passage, this chapter of Joshua chapter five that talk about how it is you and I can put ourselves in the place to see and experience the amazing things that God has planned and is doing in your own life, in the life of your family, in the life of our church. I mean, we stand right on the precipice of a fall and spring with unprecedented ministry opportunity. We as a church family, we prepare our hearts, we step into the future with boldness and obedience so that we can experience the things that God has planned. And I guess one of my biggest fears today is that we don't experience it because we're not looking for it, because our hearts aren't prepared, because we're busy doing other things. So, it'll be a challenge for you today, it'll be an opportunity for you today, and I want you to be able to see what the other people are seeing. I want you to be able to experience what people who are choosing to walk with God experience. I want it to make sense for you today. And so I think Joshua chapter 5 will help us with that, and I want to remind you that consecration is an Old Testament term, but it's part of us preparing our hearts that consecration really means to set ourselves apart for a person and for a purpose, Now, the person we set ourselves apart for is Jesus, and the purpose is for his purpose in our life. So we set ourselves apart. Now, back across the other side of the river, back on the west side of the river, when the children of Israel had camped for three days waiting to cross over, they were told to purify their hearts. They were told to purify their hearts, to keep their eyes on Jesus, and to put their feet in the water ten toes in. Today, it's 10 toes in and other parts, and you'll see why that's the case in just a minute, but they had to put themselves in a spot where they could experience the amazing things that God was going to do. Now, they're across the river. They built a monument to God and his faithfulness. They're waiting to see what's next. Jericho and the battle of Jericho is the next thing on their agenda, on their calendar. And they're camped at the base of Jericho, on the plains of the city of Jericho, looking at a city that looks to be um, inconquerable, waiting to hear from God, and God has plans for them that don't make sense to me. And I don't think they'll make sense to you at first, but together as we talk through it, maybe we'll see that God always makes perfect sense, that his word is complete, lacking nothing, that it's all we need to know how to live our lives, how to relate to each other and to discover our purpose together and individually in this life that we're living. So, let's look together at Joshua chapter five and I wanna talk to you about some instructions that seem random. A connecting couple of paragraphs that, um, well, let's just dive into it. Now when the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they'd crossed over. Their hearts melted in fear, and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. Now, let's talk for just a second. Here's a housekeeping note. If um, this was a classroom, I would tell you that this is something you want to write down, not because this is going to help you apply this truth, but because it's going to help you understand Scripture and help contribute to your biblical worldview. Now, Canaan is a generic term that's used, we call it the promised land. It's used for a group of people living in a large geographic region. And it's kinda like if I said, um, Dan is from the south. If I said Pastor Dan is from the South, you would understand what that means. To us, it's just this large nebulous geographic region where we know people live, but we don't really know a lot of people from the South, maybe a few, and when you're from the South, like Pastor Dan, it matters to him whether you're from Mississippi or Alabama or Georgia or Tennessee or you know, wherever you're from, but for us, it doesn't really matter. They're just from the South, right? Like Canada. Canada has a bunch of different places, provinces, cities. To us, it's just Canada. That's kind of how Canaan was. It's this big group of people, or, uh, this big geographic region. Within it, it had many different groups of people who lived there, ethnic groups. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and that's a name that we've given them later for people Like we don't really know who they are. We just sort of call them southerners. So it, when you read all these names, I just want you to understand, it's a bunch of different people living in a geographic region. The point is, the region they live in, God had given them, the Jewish people, to conquer and to move into the promised land. Now, this is the point. There's a crossing, and because of the crossing, all of the people who were living in this, we call the promised land, the land of Canaan, were terrified of God and terrified of the children of Israel. And all of the children of Israel, some two million people crossed over. So I wanna ask you this question as we begin our time together looking at the ability to be able to experience god's blessing for all of this to make sense for us to discover our purpose and my question to you is have you crossed over have you made a decision to trust jesus christ to follow him as both your lord and your savior because unless you've crossed over you're still wandering in the wilderness and and you can't go any further And so you see across the river people who are walking with God, and you wonder what all the hubbub's about and haven't really experienced it yet yourself. And and I believe the Bible teaches us that in every person's life, there's a moment in time when all of us being born on one side of the Jordan, the lost side of the Jordan, where God parts the waters of the Jordan Sea or river and invites us all to choose to walk over Now we have to choose. Some people prefer to wander in the wilderness. Some call it searching for truth. In the wilderness where we're all born and where these children of Israel spent 40 years, there are many things to serve. There were many little g gods to serve, and we put the same things in our life that we pursue, that we spend our time, attention, energy, and focus trying to get our jobs, our bank accounts, our toys, our friends, our family, all the things that look good, education, things that seem important but yet aren't as important as making sure that we're following the Lord. And so we wander around, and we find that every goal that we achieve, when we grab it, it slips through our fingers because it's empty, and the Jordan rivers part, and we have to choose whether or not we're gonna leave this old way of life behind and accept Jesus Christ and begin to live a different way. And it's scary, because the old way, the desert, the wilderness is familiar. It seems that we have more control, in some ways predictable. And God calls us to something that seems unpredictable, out of control, and a little scary. But we choose to take that step as the waters are parted and to pursue Jesus and say, the wilderness is behind me. I'm going to live in the promised land. Every person has to choose to make that decision to follow Jesus. You're not born into salvation. It has nothing to do with the family that brought you into this world, to the country or nationality that you happen to be born into, to the education that you have gathered along the way, even to the church that you've been a part of, every person's responsible for stepping out in faith, confessing sin, believing who Jesus is, and choosing to walk and live a different way. And it's that responsibility that compels us to take that first step. And if we listen, all of the voices of reason that tell us not to go, they begin to, to subside. And we hear the voice of the Holy Spirit saying, come on. And we have to choose. So the children of Israel, they crossed the Jordan. And because of this, God melted the hearts of their enemies. So here they are on the other side of the Jordan having crossed, assuming most of us are on the other side of the Jordan River, having decided to step out in faith and become what we would call Christians or believers. And then we see something really unusual and unlikely happen. I want to read it to you, and um, I wish it was self-explanatory. It's not. We're going to spend a little time on it. Um, It's called, and I have four different C's that we've outlined this chapter in, this one's called the circumcision. Now, I'm gonna sort of apologize to you in advance because last week we talked about prostitution. Remember, we talked about that. And um, some of you had to have some conversations with your children um, to explain uh, what that is. Um, and the Bible talks about themes and events that if Christians turned the Bible into a movie, especially the Old Testament, we would pick at it. We wouldn't allow it to be shown to decent people. It has some themes and some things that happen in it that are hard to wrap our minds around. And this particular thing is not a difficult thing to wrap your mind around, it's just an uncomfortable subject to talk about in church. It's called circumcision. And circumcision was important, particularly in this day, because it represented a covenant, an agreement. The physical stepping out in faith that matches the spiritual internal commitment to live for the Lord to physically back up with your actions in your body what you say you're going to do in your mind. This covenant was initiated with Abraham when Abraham was 99 years old. Can you imagine? God says, hey Abraham, I want you to follow me. And Abraham's like, look, I am. And he's like, no, I got something else I want you to do. <laughs> For many of us, that would be a faith stopper, right? It'd be a deal killer. It's like, uh-uh, you got to be kidding me. Can you imagine the people in Abraham's life? I mean, I don't want to paint a negative or terrible word picture. It's okay to think about this. It's in the Bible. It would have been a difficult kind of thing. And so Abraham's like, why? Right? And, and all the women are like, well, what's the big deal? And the men are like, why? And why in the world would somebody do that? And God said, look, it's a symbol. And the symbol is that all of us are born sinful, and that sin is passed down from father to son, from father to daughter, that every generation from the time of Adam has been sinful, Adam and Eve fell, born cursed, and the covenant that God made to reverse the curse is passed down and was passed down through the Jewish people represented, their faithfulness represented by the act of circumcision. Jewish boys were supposed to be circumcised at eight days. In this case, the entire nation of Israel, all of the fighting men had not been circumcised, and that was a problem. Why? Because God expected an outward sign of your obedience. It's not enough to say, I love you, God, and not act like it. It's not enough to say, I serve you, God, and not have our lives represent that. And so here we see, at that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gilba Haraloth. And when he says again, he doesn't mean the same people again. Their parents had been circumcised when they lived in Egypt. The parents had failed to circumcise their children. Now, this is why he did so. Now, I'm so happy that that Joshua explains this because I wanted to know, and maybe you want to know too. This is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, they died in the wilderness on the way after leaving Egypt because of their disobedience. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born into the wilderness during the journey from Egypt, they had not, which meant that their parents had chosen for the kids not to pass on this covenant, this commitment of faithfulness. The parents had demonstrated to their kids that it's okay to say you follow God, that you say you worship God, that you say you love the Lord. But not to have your lives, your behavior, your actions follow that up. For us, the translation is really powerful. It's really important. We say we serve the Lord, but we have to have lives that are circumcised. Now, the analogy is not really as contextual for us as it was for them. But when I look at my life and your life, we look at the things Like what do we think about? Has my thought life been changed? Has my bank account been circumcised? Does it demonstrate my love to the Lord and my faithfulness? My calendar, has it been circumcised? Or am I just saying that I love the Lord but that none of these things really matter and passing on to the next generation that I can say something with my mouth and not back it up with my life. Do you see how important it was for these men to step back into alignment with God's plan, to show with their actions what they say that they believe in their heart? All the people who came out had been, but all the ones born in the wilderness had not been. Well, men who were military age were probably men who were 39 years and younger and um, unfortunately, none of them had been taught to obey the Lord. So let's move on. For the Lord had sworn to them that they wouldn't see this land that he had promised. And um, he raised up their sons in their place. And these were the ones that Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. He really believes the point because people want to know after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. So we are assuming now by this point that we have crossed the river, that we've become believers. We assume by this point that we've allowed our lives to back up our, this inward commitment, that we're demonstrating tangibly with the way we live that we love the Lord, that we're leaving sin behind in self and the pursuit of things that lead us away from the people that God wants us to be. And then he takes them into a third step that's just as important for you and I, and these steps build on each other. They're all critically important, and they work toward a foundation of faithfulness, of experiencing God's blessing, and that is that they participated in something that was called the Passover. Let's look at that together. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites then they celebrated the Passover. So think about the passing of time here, think about the passing of events. And I don't wanna belabor the point, but you have to understand, these are people who were led across a river from an old life to a new life, who were asked to demonstrate outward obedience that reflected their inward commitment, put in a state of vulnerability for several days where every person who could swing a sword was laid up trying to heal from surgery, Trusting that God was going to provide for them trusting that God was going to take care of them going through this process of Realigning of recommitting of a restart of a fresh chance And then instead of leading them to Jericho and starting the battle and doing all the great stuff the cool stuff The stuff that we want to hear about he leads them to a celebration God does through Joshua on the 14th day of the month while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho They celebrated the Passover the day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, and you may say, so what? Well, the so what is they'd been eating manna for years, the same meal. For some of us, that's not that big a deal. For some of us, that's torture. I could eat the same thing every single day, it wouldn't bother me. My wife, variety is the spice of life. She loves recipes and cooking. Same stuff every meal, decades. And all of a sudden they have produce and they have bread that was left over unleavened bread because the people had fled and they'd left their stuff behind kind of like if you and I decided we're gonna take over Ames we're sick of all the ruckus coming from Ames so we're gonna go take it over we all get in our cars and we take off we're gonna go take over Ames but we call ahead and we say look God's told us we're gonna take you over We're gonna run you out of the land, we're gonna claim Ames for ourselves. And all of them said, forget it, these guys are walking with God, we're not gonna fight them. And so they all took off from Ames, they left. But they left us a fairway full of groceries. And we get to go right in, and we get to eat whatever we want, and we have deli meat, and we have turkey, and we have steak, and we have veggies, and we have, you know, that's that's kinda how, they were living the dream. But they didn't go straight to the dream. They went to a celebration, a ceremony, a Passover that hadn't been celebrated for 40 years. That, by the way, you had to be circumcised if you were a male to even participate in. That was a reenact and a remembrance of, of when God delivered them out of Egypt and sent them into the wilderness in the first place. The last plague that God brought to Pharaoh and to Egypt was the death of the firstborn the children of Israel had to take a lamb and the blood of the lamb and put it over the doorpost. And the night the angel of death flew over, came over the city, the country, anyone with the blood over the doorpost, their children were saved. And if they didn't have the blood of the lamb over the doorpost, there was death in every single house. And this celebration, this Thanksgiving, was a remembrance of the death, the blood of the Lamb. For us, it's the blood of Jesus that provided the way for us to be freed from the slavery of our old life and to live in this new life, to be able to step out in obedience and to show through our, the way we live but this Passover, they ate seven different things. It was a symbol, it was a ritual. They had to eat this meal sort of with their, their, uh, their robes sort of girded up and their running shoes on because they were in a hurry. But they ate unleavened bread because they showed how anxious they were to leave their past life behind. They drank from a cup that showed that the blood of Jesus or the lamb was the only thing that allowed this new life to happen. They ate bitter, bitter herbs. So that when they ate the bitter herbs, the taste in their mouth reminded them of how bad our old life was. And they could remember what living for self brought. And they celebrated. Thank you, God. Thank you for leading me out of an old life. Thank you for allowing me to live for you by showing you in the way I live. Thank you for allowing me to worship you. It's why we get together and do this on Sunday morning. Worship happens in our lives and the way we live, but also right here. It's the reason we sing songs to the Lord, because we tell him thank you. But we tell him thank you with a life of obedience, not a life of compartmentalization and games. And the compartmentalization and the games are what prevent us from experiencing God's blessing, and sometimes we never see the story he's desperately trying to write because we take ourselves out of a place where we can experience it. So, these are the three things leading up to the fourth and last thing that's mind-blowing but also pretty cool, and that is that Joshua, and he was kind of wandering around, this is how I visualize it, sort of getting ready to have to, to lead a military campaign against a city that had huge walls that we've talked about with really scary fighting men and they didn't have you know, the advantage tactically I think Joshua was kind of walking around. I believe he was praying because the Bible tells us he looked up and sometimes when people pray they look down. We don't know that for sure. But this is what we do know for sure. Joshua was near Jericho, and he looked up, and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. This was combat, man. This was like a hostile territory. You didn't see people you didn't know and not try to figure out if they were for you or against you. I mean, you draw your weapon, right? You may not point it at his face, but you're at least going to have it at the ready. And he looks at him, and he says, are you for us or for our enemies? Are you a good guy or a bad guy? And the man replies, neither, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. This is what he says. I'm not for you. He says, are you for me? Now, that's huge. I have, we'll sit down for a second and just see if I can look at your faces, and, and, and I want to see how it impacts you. Because many of us, we live our lives constantly asking Jesus, are you for me or against me? And the reason we don't get it is because we never come to the place where we can say, that's the wrong question. I'm for you. Your agenda is what's important. Joshua asked him the wrong question. Now, who is the commander of the army of the Lord? Theologians think two things. You can think one of these two things. If you think another thing, then you probably have a problem with Scripture, and we could talk about that. These are two things that most people who believe in the infallibility of Scripture, they believe. One of these two things. One, they believe that this, the commander of the army of the Lord, is a a Christophany, which means that it's Jesus who's taking on a, a human form before he actually became a man and lived his 33-year life and revealed himself to, to Joshua in this case. Some people believe that he is an angel who's the commander of the army of the Lord, speaking with the authority of God and bringing with him, in his words, the full power of God. Either of those possibilities are true. I like to think about the first possibility. I believe that there are several times in the Old Testament where Jesus did that. It doesn't really matter for our interpretation because for all purposes, he's speaking to the Lord... Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence, and he asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? Now this is what's so important. We have crossed the Jordan. We have stepped out in our faith and our lives show our love for Jesus. We have celebrated and not just said, God, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. God, help me, help me, help me, help me, help me. We're saying, God, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And then we come face to face with Jesus, and we say to him, what is it that you want from me today? I have a dog. His name's Baxter. We have named him Baxter County because that's where my people live, both my boys, my daughter-in-law, my granddaughter most importantly, right? Baxter County, Baxter County, Arkansas, that's what we call little Baxter. Sometimes we call him Baxter, sometimes I call him County, sometimes I call him B.C., sometimes I call him things that aren't appropriate for church. And I will not tell you what those things are. Baxter has a dog door built it into the wall of our house. He can go in and out anytime he wants to. Before he could go through the dog door, we built or put a bell on a cord on our sliding glass door so that he could go up and ring the bell. We'd go open the door, he could go out. Now he can go out anytime he wants to. But Baxter County still rings the bell. He walks up random times for no reason. Bing, rings the bell. If we don't hop up off our chairs and go running over to Baxter, he keeps ringing the bell. Ding, ding, and ding, you know, and then looks and... and, and The reason is simple. Baxter's short. He's only about this tall, 14 pounds. He can't reach the cabinet, he can't open the snack jar, he can't get in the refrigerator, thank God. The only thing he's capable of doing is taking what's on the floor. And as you know, for a dog, that's never good enough. So what does he do? He rings the bell It's the only way he has any chance of engaging with the good stuff. And so when I walk over, I'm like, Baxter, what do you want? And Baxter looks at me and he says, what do you got, right? He doesn't care, let's go for a ride, let's get a snack, let's have some steak. I mean, he just wants something. And that's what the point is here. We wake up in the morning and we engage the commander and we say, Jesus, what do you want? What is it today that I can do? I want the good stuff. I don't know what it is, but I know I can't get it myself. So show me. What's next? He fell down to the ground in reverence after taking his sandals off. And the Bible says um, it was holy ground. And Joshua did it. So I feel like for us, before we go to Jericho, and I feel like this is so important and so true for our church, for our church family, being on the verge of something amazing. If we're not prepared, if our hearts aren't right, if we're not all living what we say we believe, we're gonna miss it. And there's nothing I want more and to experience it with you, starts with you. It spreads to your family, to the people who you have the most influence in and around, spills over into our church family. And friends, it impacts our entire Des Moines Metro. So here's what I leave you with: the challenge it comes from proverbs: "Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Leave it behind. In all your ways, submit to Him and look to Jesus. Ring that bell, and He will direct your path. Next time we're together, we'll be at Jericho. Between now and then, let's work on our hearts and make sure. We don't miss the story that God's writing. Father, thank you so much for my friends.